Hello, welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. This episode is brought to you by Audible. You can support this podcast and get a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash headonhistory. I am glad that you could all join me. Today we're going to conclude our mini-series of Islam in the Maghrib. Uh, you know, in the past few episodes we've looked at North Africa and Al-Andalus, and today we're going to talk about Islam and Europe and kind of draw back our lens to look at the broader picture, look at the connection of Islam to the kind of so-called Western territorial, Western territories, if you will. So we're going to look more properly at what this thing that we call Europe. Hopefully you've been enjoying this mini-series. We took a break and did a head-on history special where we talked about AP uh, world history. Hopefully you've been enjoying that. If you are enjoying that, please feel free to stop by iTunes or the podcast app and leave some feedback. I'd love to hear some reviews from you all. I'll read a few of them on air um, over the next couple weeks as we wrap up our third season. So what we call Europe today was really kind of an invention of the modern era and the rise of political and intellectual projects, kind of like European Orientalism, uh, colonialism, and the post-World War experience. We, we assume that Europe is a kind of given. We take it as a kind of ontological reality, that it is a category that has always existed, that there is this thing called Europe. When in reality, much of Europe was a series of, uh, you know, t- empires that were competing with one another, principalities that were competing with one another, kingdoms that were warring with one another. I mean, the War of Roses and the Hundred Year War, there's, you know, battles of Protestant Reformation versus the Counter-Reformation. So in reality, what we call Europe really didn't exist until much more contemporary moments uh, in which that region was reimagined as a whole. Um, firstly, under kind of the, the intellectual creation of Orientalism, the idea that there's this thing called the Orient, which is then used to define Europe. In fact, the the imagining of of the Orient is essential for the identity of Europe. Europe does not exist without creating that other. While simultaneously part part of the kind of political project of trying to put back the region after these great world wars. The world wars were like a moment where, where everyone never again, not just in terms of genocide, but in terms of this kind of dangerous form of nationalism. And so there was an attempt to kind of reimagine that. And so you had the the, mo- the NATO moment, the rise of the U- EU, etc. The post-World Wars produced this kind of imagining of the political project of bringing Europe together. And that political project, in turn, spawned a series of, of historical, political writings on this thing called Europe. So you started to see the rise of so-called European studies, right? Uh, German studies, etc. that really kind of tried to bring uh, Europe into a cohesive whole. Now, there were earlier attempts at uh, imagining some sort of territorial unity, but it wasn't called Europe. There were other uh, kind of imaginings. So like the various parts of that we call Europe today fell under different domains. Northern Europe and England were almost never included in kind of the earliest territorial imaginings. Under the Roman Empire, Europe really consisted of the territories of Southern Europe. That would be, um, you know, Rome, Italy. Greece, uh, even uh, Turkey as well. Uh, that is Southern Europe and around the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean was called Mare Nostrum or Our Sea by the Romans. So it was really Mediterranean centric. With the rise of Christianity, uh, Christendom, that is the territory of Christianity, was really defined as those lands that fell under the domain of the Pope, which often 
excluded the eastern Mediterranean, and even those territories were contested. And yet one consistent here is that for much of this history, North Africa was part of the early imaginings of Europe. Egypt was the grain capital of Rome, and Augustine of Hippo, one of the forefathers of Christian theology, lived and taught in Africa. The idea being that while East, the eastern Mediterranean was often contested under the Roman Empire, it fell under their conception of Rome. Rome was Anatolia just as much as it was uh, Italy. Under Christendom, the eastern Mediterranean falls away, and the Roman Empire becomes more centered in the western Mediterranean. Yet in both of those imaginings of what it means to be either Roman or Christendom, Africa is part of that imagining. That is, Africa is very much, or at least North Africa, is part of uh, Europe. And the same can be said about Islam, Western Europe, or what we covered as Al-Andalus, was part of the Maghreb. The Maghreb included two territories, Ifriqiya, that would be North Africa, that's Egypt and Libya, uh, Tunis, Morocco, as well as Al-Andalus. Those territories, Ifriqiya and Al-Andalus, produced what is known as the Maghreb. So Europe and Africa were part, or Western Europe and Africa, were part of this Islamic imagining of what we would call um, Europe. Islam, therefore, has been in Europe for as long as Europe has imagined itself as a cohesive their territory. Early imaginings of Christendom were, could argue to be a, were produced as a result of that kind of encounter with Islam. So Christendom really emerges as it encounters Islam. So you have this civilizational force that is Islam or Islamic, even though it's contested, there's the Umayyads battling it out in Al-Andalus versus the Abbasids, which are in the Persian world. There's a lot of com and a lot of uh, kind of minor governors and dynasties like the Almovarids and etc. that existed that competed it. Yet there is this imagining that oh well, there's this thing called Europe. There's this thing. I mean, this thing called Islam. Your Christendom is ex ex you know encountering it. Oh, the Muslims are all one unified territory. Therefore, we must be one unified territory, and that is uh, Christendom. And you know, in 1095, we see the most the clearest kind of articulation of this. Pope Urban II calls for a crusade. He calls for God's peace in Europe to carry out God's war in the Holy Land. Now, despite these kind of imaginings of Christendom versus Islam, Christian, Christian civilization versus Islamic civilization, it's easy uh, to kind of fall into that trap. It's easy to see Europe and Islam as oppositional civilizational identities. And certainly there was conflict between the two, from the Crusades to the Reconquista. But the reality is that they are far more entwined and entangled than just fighting on opposite sides. I'll give you an example of this. In 730, uh, Charles Mattel, who really kind of reclaimed a lot of the terror of the Frankish territories uh, from Muslim rulers, and and not only reclaimed them, but established what eventually goes on to become the Carolingian dynasty, a Frankish uh, Christian. Uh, empire, if you will, that is really on the borders with the Muslim world. In 730, uh, he goes up against an alliance between Christians and Muslims. The uh, ruler of Aquitaine, Odo, Odo the Great, marries his daughter, Lampagia, La or uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, to Munuza. Munuza was the uh, governor in Al-Andalus, Odo, a Christian with 
Munuza, a Muslim, form an alliance, and this alliance is in opposition to Charles Mattel. And Charles Mattel in 730 eventually defeats both of them. But that's an example of how, how even politically, despite this kind of language of Europe versus Islam or Islam and Europe being two civil, different civilizations, they're actually tangled and the lived reality is one of encounter and exchange more often than it is of conflict and opposition. Uh, we see this most clearly with the relationship between the Carolingian dynasty and uh, the Abbasid dynasty. The Abbasids were set in Baghdad and the Carolingians were set in the Frankish world. In 765, Pepin the Short, uh, which is kind of a misnomer, We'd, he was probably not short, he was probably quite tall. But in 765, he, he establishes an embassy in Baghdad, a Carolingian embassy with Al-Mansur. In 777, Suleiman al-Arabi, which who was the wali of Barcelona, that is the governor of Barcelona, goes even further. He establishes an alliance with Charlemagne against Abdul Rahman I, and they join their forces together and attacked Abdul Rahman. Here he is, Suleiman al-Arabi, a Muslim, and he's willing to take Charlemagne. You know, we often talk about Charlemagne as this great Christian conqueror, the one who defeated the Muslims or who stopped the Muslim invasion. But in reality, he was allied with some Muslims. Suleiman and Al-Arabi joined forces against Abdul Rahman I. And that's because Suleiman Al-Arabi was actually a pro-Abbasid uh, governor of Barcelona. The relationship continues with the Carolingians. In 797, uh, the, the embassy in Baghdad, which is the first one established by Charlemagne after uh, Pepin the Short. So Pepin the Short is the first that reaches out to the Abbasids, and the Abbasids reach out to Pepin the Short, and they start to, the beginnings of their exchange. But in 797, there was a much bigger embassy established under Charlemagne, and it was composed by three men. Uh, a Jewish man, Isaac, known as Isaac Judaeus, um, Landfried, and Sigmund. They were all three sent to Baghdad, where they served as emissaries of Charlemagne. And in turn, um, under Harun al-Rashid, they were given a series of massive gifts to take back to uh, their king, Charlemagne. And part of these gifts involved a big collection of books. These books ended up in European territories and started what's known as the Carolingian Renaissance. The re-emerging of the kind of scholastic tradition from this Carolingian script, those of you who are kind of script nerds that love, you know, I don't know, are they called scripts when you... Fonts is what they're called when you're talking on computers, right? Those of you that are font nerds, the Carolingian script comes out of this particular moment. It's a result of this kind of exchange with the Islamic world. The, schola, uh, the scholarly tradition of, of, of scholasticism in the Carolingian dynasty is a result of books that were exchanged now. Now, remember, when we talked about the opposite dynasty, paper had been made available vis-a-vis -vis China. And so as a result, there was this massive translation project under Harun al-Rashid. And that translation project made it so that books were more readily available in the Muslim world than they were anywhere else in the world at that time. And we talked about in, in our episodes on, on the Abbasids that the, you could go on the bookmaker street and you would see thousands upon thousands and thousands of books. Uh, whereas in a monastery, you would probably have about 10 books if you were lucky. And that was considered a massive treasure. So the gifting of these books 
to Charlemagne was both an extraordinarily luxuriant, expensive, opulent gift. It was highly valued, but also carried with it a series of intellectual, um, you know, consequences. Here you have books that are translations of works that have been unavailable in the European world since the time of Augustine of Hippo. You have the writings of Aristotle, commentators. All of this stuff starts, is translated through this diplomatic exchange. There's another exchange that happens between the embassy of Charlemagne and the Abbasids, the Muslim Abbasids, and this is Abu Abbas. It was an elephant. Abu Abbas, this elephant, was a gift that was given to Charlemagne. And I think in some ways, this is a really, really good metaphor for understanding the way this world was connected. That there was more global connections than we realized. And it was more connected than it was uh, divided up between uh, territories or, or divided up between civilizations. And we have evidence of the elephant um, in the Carolingian history book, Annals Regni Francorum, which talks about it. And the idea, the, the legend or the story is that Isaac, who was, remember, Isaac the Jew, who was the, one of the emissaries in the embassy, he took the elephant as a gift. Uh, Harun al-Rashid gave him the elephant, and he took this elephant, which began by following the Egyptian coast in Ifraqiyah, so he started in Baghdad, made his way through the uh, uh, Persianate world, which would have included Iraq, and then he made his way through the Levant into the possibly around or near the Holy Land. This would be the, the kind of trek he's taking, and then this would lead him into Ephraqia, starting in Egypt. So he's passing the Sinai, goes into Egypt. The governor of Egypt helps him. Uh, get across, so he follows the Egyptian coast, uh, probably going uh, past Libya. Uh, he set sail from Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia. So you can see him all the way down this coast, following from the from from the heart of the Muslim world, from the into the Levant, into Africa, following the, the southern Mediterranean, following that all the way to modern-day Tunisia, taking the port from Tunisia, and then traveling through the Mediterranean to Europe, bringing this magnificent elephant to Charlemagne. It was a huge gift and a huge moment. The connection of the Muslim world to Europe via this track shows us first and foremost how vibrant these trade routes were, that they included overland travel as well as sea travel. We also see the importance of ports which connected the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is not just one empty void, but a series of routes that connected the world around it. You could see it as a sort of network, a worldwide web, if you will, that existed at that time. Well, what's interesting is those ports still exist today. Today, the ports to Europe and North Africa are still vibrant in their connection between the two worlds. You can take a boat and make a really quick trip, a couple hours across the Mediterranean, and you're in Africa. And from Africa, you're in Europe. Now, what's interesting is uh, for, about Abu Abbas is that he didn't just—he wasn't just a gift. In 810, Charlemagne mounted a massive campaign uh, against King Godfrid of Denmark, and guess who? What he took with him? He took Abu Abbas the elephant. The idea being that he wanted to use Abu Abbas like a war elephant like they did back in the Carthaginian Wars and the Punic Wars, right? Hannibal's elephants, uh, like Alexander encountered when he entered into India. He wanted to use this Muslim elephant, this Muslim gift, against King Godfrey of Denmark, a Christian king.
Now, unfortunately, the elephant dies. Uh, there are some rumors that the elephant was uh, albino and that perhaps the elephant is where we get the term white elephant from. Uh, it, that is a bit of a, a myth. There is no real evidence that the elephant was white or an albino. The, in fact, there is a kind of entryway by a different dignitary, but it's with a question mark, so we're not quite sure. But I think the metaphor of Abu Abbas is a telling one. It talks about the connections between the Muslim world and Europe, ways in which trade encountered with one another, ways in which alliances were made, that it's not Europe versus Islam or Islam versus Europe, but rather Europe would create alliances with Muslim dynasties against other, you know, Christian European uh, kingdoms that, that, you know, Charlemagne was willing to make an alliance with the Abbasids against the Umayyads in Al-Andalus. He was willing to make an alliance with the Abbasids against Godfred, right, this Christian king. And so these complex lived realities reveal an entanglement that Islam and Europe are entangled with one another. And that while there are attempts to kind of define the self, the identity in oppositional terms. Europe is Europe as opposed to Islam, and Islam is Islam as opposed to Europe, that the lived reality is one of exchange and interaction. And that's that exchange and interaction taking place from the very earliest moments of Islam and, and the rise of kind of, of, of Christendom that epitomize the entanglements, the, the exchange, and the lived realities of ordinary people. It's that complex, nuanced history that often gets erased in today's language of kind of the Muslim world versus Europe. And this is also the kind of language that gets then redeployed in the language of migrants and refugees, right? Viktor Orban of Hungary talks about Muslim invaders when he's talking about migrants. Um, you see the same kind of language with uh, this kind of newly elected Italian uh, fa- kind of right-wing fascistic Italian government. There's this language of oh Muslim hordes, um, oh Muslims are invading. You know the kind of reinvoking of Charlemagne and defending Christendom, and yet that history doesn't live up to the you know what they're talking about. What they're discussing is an imagination that doesn't exist. That the history is complicated. That the history is the history of elephant exchanges of Abu Abbas <laughs> making his way all across the Muslim world across. The the sea to become the war elephant of Charlemagne, the founder of the Carolingian dynasty. So in addition to Abu Abbas, there was also books that were exchanged. And these books are really the key to um, the inter- entanglement, if you will, between Islam and the so-called so-called Europe. Um, one of the most important figures, and we've talked a lot about this when we talked about Al-Andalus and the Maghreb. We talked about the exchange of geography, the exchange of science, the rise, uh, you know, the ma- equations of Copernicus being rooted in in a lot of the principles of uh, a lot of the uh, kind of discoveries within the Islamic world and Al-Andalus. We've even discussed Ibn Sina and the rise of modern medicine. But there's one figure that I, I want to kind of Talk, that, talk about that really, I think, epitomizes the metaphor that I'm trying to, to demonstrate in this podcast. And that's Avaroas, or Ibn Rushd. Ibn Rushd was in Cordoba, or near Cordoba, and he was one of the major philosophers of the medieval uh, Islamic world. And he was interesting because he believed that there was only one singular truth, that there was one truth known as Haq, Al-Haq, and that this truth can be found through two Paths. One was belief, and one was rational thought, or philosoph, philosophy. And that when these two were in contradiction with one another, when these two did not meet eye to eye, that you would then turn to 
metaphor and allegory within the sacred text in order to resolve them. In other words, rational thinking was more important than so-called theological thinking, that it was less about things like isnad and transmission and less about um, you know, specific legalistic uh, definitions, even though he himself was a jurist and trained in classical Islamic law, usul al-fiqh. He believed that rational thought was the ultimate arbiter of what was truth and that there was a way of kind of balancing rational rationality and uh, Islam. His, he was a deeply Aristotelian thinker and his translations of Aristotle were so important for the European world that when the, Europe, uh, when the Reconquista happened and when and, you, know, you had the, the fall of Al-Andalus, his works remained. That of all the kind of Islamic thinkers, even though we see their influence in, in science, we see the influence of Islam in math, we see the influence of Islam in a variety of different uh, uh, places, that in the field of philosophy, Ibn Rushd becomes the most important. So much so that Thomas Aquinas actually calls him the commentator, that, that European theologians would read Aristotle through Averroes. Now, Thomas Aquinas ultimately disagrees with Averroes or Ibn Rushd. He argues against his uh, thesis and against Averroes and then eventually in Summa Theologica, where he argues that the theology is more important than philosophy. But there is an interesting way in which Averroes ends up becoming the forefather of the European Renaissance and Enlightenment. So in the 15th century, one of the most important Jewish thinkers in Europe was a man named Elias de Medigo, and he was a professor at the University of Padua. Padua is an important place because Padua becomes the kind of center of Averroism. Now, Averroism becomes sec- uh, kind of synonymous for quote-unquote secularism or atheism, the idea that rational thought trumps uh, theology. And indeed, to be an Averroist was to be accused of be, to being an atheism. And so there's a kind of sort of is- interesting Islamic route to secularism and, and uh, uh, atheism that is often kind of ignored vis-a-vis Averroes. So anyways, it's in Padua that Medigo ends up becoming a teacher of one of the most important figures of the Renaissance, and that's Pico della Mirandola. Pico della de Mirandola was hugely important. In 1486, he wrote the Oration on the Dignity of Man, which is believed by many to be the beginning kind of salvo of the Renaissance. It is, in fact, probably the magnum opus or the, or the manifesto, if you will, of the Renaissance. It is the birth of the Renaissance thinking, the rise of humanism, the rise of rationalism. And Pico della Marandola is interested heavily in Arabic and Arabic traditions. And he reintroduces the act of translating. So he begins and takes all these kind of Arabic thinkers, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, etc., and he starts to translate it, including works on like astrology and astronomy. Not just astronomy, but astrology, the birth of kind of Rena- Renaissance astrology, Pico de Marandola, and really brings it about with the translation of a variety of different texts, like Abu Mashar's work and Mashallah's work, or these famous kind of Arab astrologers. But also, particularly adopting Averroes' beliefs on philosophy and rationalism as the core of his thinking, Pico de Mirandola is influenced by Elia de Modego. Now, Elia de Modego is an Averroist. Elia de Modego is a student of, Maim- of two people, Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher of Al-Andalus, who we talked about in previous episodes, and the student of 
uh, Averroes or Ibn Rushd. This is the way in which Ibn Rushd ends up becoming the kind of backbone, if you will, of the European Renaissance through Pico de Mirandola, who gets it from Medigo, and Medigo, who gets it from Ibn Rushd. That intellectual genealogy really reveals the way in which Islam isn't just an oppositional uh, civilization to Europe, and Europe isn't just an oppositional civilizational to Islam, but that these two are entangled one with another, they influence one another, that Islam was in the earliest imaginings of Europe, that it was both a political ally of um, the, the Carolingians, it was both a diplomatic ally, as we saw with the Abbasids, that it was also an intellectual ally, that the two were entangled with one, and that the major thought, thinkers and thought of Islam ended up in the heart of the Renaissance and eventually the Enlightenment. It is not an over-exaggeration to say that without Ibn Rushd, there would be no Renaissance. Without Ibn Rushd, there would be no Enlightenment. So that's what I'm going to end with today. I'm going to f uh, wrap up with a final story. So we've talked about, kind of drawn the lens backwards, to locked, looked at the kind of way in which Europe is engaged, Islam was engaged with Europe beyond kind of Al-Andalus. We've already talked about Al-Andalus in our previous episode. This episode, I really wanted to talk about the kind of diplomatic and intellectual exchanges between uh, these societies and how these societies were entangled with one another and then the ways in which they constantly reimagined themselves and the other. So I'm going to end with, I think, the perfect metaphor of the importance of Al-Maghrib, that is the, the kind of world of North Africa and Europe uh, to the Islamic world. And I'm going to talk, uh, give you a story, a story that I think is probably one of the reasons why we study history. One of those figures that is utterly fascinating, that's just like, you, you, can't, you can't get away from him. Um, and it's a man named Musa I of Mali, known as Mansa Musa. Uh, Mansa is actually uh, a title uh, which means sultan or conqueror or ruler or commander. Mansa Musa of Mali was a Muslim ruler and his story is I think a great story that epitomizes the power of trade, the things that we've talked about in our in our podcast over the past several episodes about the story of Al-Andalus, Ifraqiya and its relation to Europe and its relationship to uh, Islam. So what's interesting is that Mansa Musa becomes a ruler because he is appointed uh, a kind of representative when the king before him sets out on a journey. The king before him decides, um, uh, this is Abdul uh, um, uh, Abu Kari uh, Ketia II. Abu Kari Ketia II is the king, and he decides that he's going to go on a journey. But his journey is to go to the uh, west, and he is going to travel across the Atlantic. And he so he sets out with a series of ships, and he goes out this. Uh, Abu Bakari, I'm sorry, Abu Bakari Ketia sets out and he goes across the Atlantic and he's gone for years, gone for years. He's going to go. Now, according to the transcripts of Al-Umari, who's an Egyptian historian, we know that at this time, Mali believed and the Muslim world believed that the world was a globe. 
the world was not flat, contrary to a lot of the kind of the beliefs that were circulating in uh, Europe at the time. At this time period, they didn't believe that the world was was flat. They believed that the world was round, and so that you could go across. So this was kind of the Christopher Columbus moment of Europe, but it wasn't successful. Abu Bakari goes out on this journey, the king, and he never comes back. Just disappears swallowed up by the ocean. And so as a result, Mansa Musa goes from being governor to king. And as he becomes king, he decides that he's going to expand his kingdom. He builds these beautiful universities in these giant cities. And one of the cities that he builds is Timbuktu. Timbuktu becomes one of the major capitals of intellectual learning in the African world. If you lived in Ifraqiya and you were looking for social mobility, you would become a scholar at Timbuktu. Timbuktu, in turn, has a connection to Al-Qawirun, which was the university over in Morocco. These two universities produced so many texts that they were eventually, those texts were translated in Sicily. They became the basis for the geographical imaginings of Europe. Indeed, the navigations of later European scholars, uh, European travelers during the age of exploration from Christopher Columbus on are all a result of the exchange between Timbuktu and Al-Qawriun with European universities. And it all comes down to this man named Mansa Musa. This man is the one who really founded Timbuktu. And he built these beautiful mosques and these beautiful uh, uh, cities. And he was one of the wealthiest people in the world. He was so wealthy that today we believe he would have been the equivalent of like 10 Jeff Bezos. That's how wealthy this guy was. Super wealthy. And that's because at the heart of his empire was trade. Africa was the heart of the trading world. We often talk about the Silk Road as a kind of connection between China and Rome, but the reality was this trade was penetrating deep and moving out from Africa, that the precious metals, gold, all of this. And this is epitomized by the pilgrimage of Mansa Musa to Mecca. So Mansa Musa decided that in 1324 to about 1325 that he was going to go on pilgrimage, that he would make a hajj, he would go across the African world, and he would go to Mecca to do the, the obligatory hajj. And he took with him, reportedly, 60,000 men, including 12,000 slaves. Each one of these slaves carried anywhere between 5 to 10 pounds of gold bars. And he took with him gold staffs and horses and bags and this massive procession of animals and human beings. Um, they included some somewhere between a hundred camels and and hundreds of, of of horses. What's interesting is that along his journey, every step of the way, he would free those slaves of those twelve thousand slaves. He would free them because in, in Islam there is an ob ob obligation for Muslims to free slaves. It's a, it's considered a a big uh, kind of holy act that's very important to liberate a slave. In addition to freeing slave, what he did is he would stop at every major city and he would hand out gold to the poor. All the gold that he took with him, five to ten pounds of gold bars, he would hand these out to the poor, just pouring it out as an act of charity known as sadaqah. He gave out so much gold to the poor that he accidentally collapsed the economy of the Mediterranean world in Africa. 
I kid you not, he collapsed their economy. What happened is that there was so much gold he was carrying and so much of it was given out that it devalued the metal and it collapsed the economy for 20 years. That Egypt, Africa, and the Mediterranean's economy just crumbled because there was just too much gold being handed out. Like, imagine if Jeff Be Bezos decides to take a journey from Los Angeles to New York City and along the way he stops at every city and he just makes it rain with $100 bills just hundred dollar bills anywhere like it would you would see what it would do the inflation would be astronomical and so Mansa Musa ends up uh, really kind of collapsing this economy but he represents quite perfectly I think the metaphor that I'm trying to kind of uh, explain and that is an Africa that is connected globally that this isn't just a region off on the corners of the world that the Maghreb is not the borders of the Islamic world no that it was central to Islam just as important as the Persian world, and that it was connected vis-a-vis -vis trade. It was not an era of, of conquest and conversion through conquest, but rather through trade. And that Islam was associated with prestige and trade and scholarship, and so people would convert. That there was a movement of money and wealth and goods and ideas. And that this imagining or this territory of Africa included Europe. That Islam was not just in Africa and then there was with Europe, but that Europe was entangled into this, that Al -Andal, through Al-Andalus and through what is known as Al-Maghreb, that the Maghreb consisted of Ifraqiya and Al-Andalus, and that there was this intellectual exchange from the geographies that were written in Timbuktu and Al-Qawirun and then tra and transferred over to Europe that gave birth to the Age of Explorations, to the medical texts of, of Ibn Sina that were found in Al-Andalus that then became the formation of European medicine for hundreds of years, the rise of the notion of infectious disease the rise of germ theory, the rise of mathematics from Al-Khwarazmi and his algorithms that then become the core and heart of, the, of Copernicus and others, to even the philosophy of Ibn Rushd, which forms the basis and backbone of the European Renaissance and Enlightenment. That's what I'm going to end here with today. Hopefully this was an interesting series for all of you. Um, you got a, a chance to really see Islam in the Western kind of world of Africa and Europe. This was a history that I'll probably do an episode on the more contemporary moment, looking at Islam from the Ottoman era on to, to the world wars, to the migrant issue. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about Islam in Europe uh, in those instances. But this will conclude our discussion of uh, Islam and Africa. So I'm going to, or Islam and Maghreb, I'm going to give you some uh, book recommendations which I think are, are really fantastic um, that I think are useful. If you're interested in learning more about Islam in Europe, I would recommend uh, David Levering Lewis's God's Crucible, Islam and the Making of Modern Europe, 570 to 1215. It's a really fantastic book that looks at Al-Andalus and its relationship with Europe. I also recommend Maria Rosa Mena calls the ornament of the world how Muslims, Jews, and Christians created a culture of tolerance in medieval Spain. It's a fantastic book um, on Al-Andalus, as well as John Hunwick's books. He write, he has two really good books. Uh, John Hunwick's book, West Africa, Islam, and the Arab World, Studies in Honor of Bessel Davidson, really, really good book, as well as uh, John Hunwick and uh, Alida Boy's The Hidden Treasures of Timbuktu, Rediscovering Africa's Literary Culture. These are some fantastic books 
and I would highly recommend them. Anyways, that's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.